Get your Bibles out. We'll be in Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. Today is the official launch date for discipleship groups, for D groups. So if you are not in a D group, uh, what I'd ask for you to do, small group leaders, Sunday school teachers, if you will, help us out this morning. If you're not in a D group this morning and you want to be in a D group, go into small group this morning, go into Sunday school, and let your small group leader know, and then we want to try to start those groups forming inside of the small groups, and then uh, if it, it is exhausted inside of that group, then if there's other people uh, outside of that group, then uh, of course you can let me know. You can email me at matt at michaelmemorial.org and we can help you with that. But uh, I'd like for you to start in your small groups. And so, like I said, most groups are launching today. We've tried many things to help you out with that. We've got a new book this year, a blue book. Many of you have already gotten it, I know. Last year we had a green book. And so, uh, this year has been a few changes. I mentioned this Wednesday night, and so if you weren't here Wednesday night, uh, we also want to help you with the memory verse. And so uh, I went out and got a bunch of these printed. And so for cost, we're going to, uh, you can get these in the library starting this week. So they're $5. Uh, it is the card with the memory verse on the front. And then on the back, it has uh, the, or the references on the front, rather, the verses on the back. And it's on a little key ring, and so you can attach that to your key ring or uh, stick it in your pocket, whatever you'd like to do, put it in your car, just a way for you to do it. There's 12 verses for the year, one every four weeks. And uh, so these will be available in the library uh, coming up this week if you'd like to get some. We only have 100 of these, so if you do want to get one, make sure you grab it. Again, they're $5 in the library. Just, uh, again, that's what it costs us to print them, so we just want to make it as easy as possible. Uh, to help you to memorize Scripture. Amen? All right, so Acts chapter 26. Pastor Tony got us into the first part of 26, and so we'll pick up here this morning. And so we'll ask God to bless our time in the Word. So let's start with that today. God, would you speak today through your Word? As your word promises that it is live and that it is active and that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, God, we believe that today. We receive that today. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, a heart to understand and courage to respond to what you'd have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we get to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. And there's a lot of uh, moving parts in these uh, Last several chapters, we see Felix was around, and now Festus is around, and now Festus has uh, brought in King Agrippa, and we learned a little bit about King Agrippa last week. He doesn't have quite the heritage that you know most people would want to have. And so we get to Acts 26, and Paul is being brought in before this group. Now, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever done anything that, you know, it, it almost happened? Obviously, you've seen the bulletin, the title of the message is so close yet so far away. Have you ever been really close to something happening, but not quite? I remember several years ago, I was in high school, and they had a school. I went to a big school, 
Uh, there was 240, I think, in my graduating class, and so there was quite a few in the class in the <clears throat> school, rather. <clears throat> so they had a school-wide function, and so they brought in the entire school, and they had a three-point shooting contest. Well, I love basketball, and so I, you know, well, I'll play, and so I entered the contest. Well, I made it all the way to the finals, and I get to the finals. It's in front of the entire school. And uh, we're playing, you know, there's one guy on one end, I'm on the other, and we're having this competition, we're back and forth, and, uh, you know, the clock's ticking down, and I'm down by two shots. And uh, as I shoot the basketball, it hits the rim and careens off towards half court, and so I realize at that moment, I am not going to win. And so I, I take off to half court, and I, right as I pass half court, I picked up the basketball, and I just threw it backwards over my head. Well, would you believe that ball actually went in the goal? Now, I didn't see it go in the goal, but the gym erupted when the, gym, when the ball went into the goal. And I lost the game by one basket. Now, does the, you know, does the half-court basket really count? I mean, you know, it was not on purpose. Uh, but I almost won. You know, here's this, you know, for a high schooler, that's kind of a big deal. And so I, as I was thinking about this message, you know, that story came to mind. Uh, you know, we've got, we've got these almost moments in our life. Well, sometimes, those, you know, that, that story really didn't change the course of my life. I wasn't destined for NBA greatness or anything. But, you know, there are times in our life where things happen that if they would have happened, it would have changed the course of our life. You know, they almost happened. I was so close to doing this or doing that. Several years ago, I was offered a job, and so we were praying about where God wanted us to be and what He wanted us to do, and so I was offered a job in Noonan, Georgia. Does anybody know where Noonan, Georgia is? A few people? Yeah, Noonan, Georgia, so it's uh, south of Atlanta, not too far, and uh, so I was offered a job over there, and so at the moment, it seemed like that was the right thing to do, and so Melanie and I prayed about it. And uh, we thought about it, and so they called and said, hey, you know, we'd like for you to come on Monday, and, you know, you'll, you'll start. It's just a technicality to show up, and, uh, you know, this is going to be your new job. So here I am, South Mississippi, and I have this job opportunity in Atlanta. And so I just began to think about and pray about all the what-ifs, you know. What, what, what would this look like? And so, I, you know, there were the things I got excited about. Oh, man, you know, I'll be 30 miles from the Atlanta Braves so I can go watch the Braves all the time. And, uh, but then I thought about how many people live in Atlanta and how there's like 74 lanes as you drive through Atlanta. And so I thought maybe, maybe that's not such a good idea. And so we just began to pray about it and just really didn't feel like God was calling us to do that. And so I called and, of course, said, no, you know, that's not, that's not what we need to do. You know, that's a big decision to make. And so I think about, well, what if I had moved to Georgia? What would that look like? Would I be in Gulfport today? Or how about that time that uh, Melly and I were going to move to Alabama, and uh, we had found a house in South Alabama, and we had packed everything up in uh, a U-Haul. It was in the front yard. Everything was ready to go, and as we were finishing up, picking up the house that we were moving from, I just had this overwhelming sense of this is not what you need to do, and God just stopped me. And so we both began to cry just to, of the reality of how close we came to making a mistake. 
I mean, who wants to live in Alabama, right? I would have had to be an Auburn fan. I mean, right? I couldn't resist. I'm sorry. But, yeah, so, you know, it was one of those moments where it was, you know, what in the world? It, it, it was just completely changed. I think back on that a lot and, and the direction and the course of life that God has brought me up until this point. And, but what if I had? I mean, when you have a U-Haul packed up to the gills in the front yard, you're close. You're close. And so I think for us, you know, we really do live in a world of almost. People get really close. You know, I think about people uh, getting close to finishing their school, their degree, and they quit. Or people getting close to making a commitment to Jesus and they they step away for fear or whatever. We, all of these moments end up shaping us into who we actually become. We all have these moments in our lives when things almost happen that could change the course of our future. Could be a job, could be a relationship, could even be an event. And so we pick up here in Acts chapter 26. King Agrippa's in the room. Festus is in the room. So in verse 1, chapter 26, we see here that the Bible starts with, it says, King Agrippa said to Paul, he says, you have permission to speak for yourself. And so Paul stretched out his hand and he made his defense. He said, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem." I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in uh, raging fury against them, I persecuted even two foreign cities. And in verse 12, Paul begins to tell of his conversion. He says, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things which you have seen, me and, in, and to those to which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you 
to darkness and to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the regions of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance." For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and and Moses would uh, say comes to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So Paul stands here in the presence of King Agrippa and many others, and he begins to tell his story. Now, we see in chapter 26, verse 1, it says, Paul said, Agrippa said to Paul, you've got permission, and Paul stretched out his hand. And so, apparently, it's believed that it's possible that Luke may have been in the audience. After all, he says he stretched out his hand. That wasn't verbal. That was an action. And so here we have all of these people that have gathered together. They've made it this big event. As a matter of fact, in uh, Acts chapter 25 and verse 23, the Bible says, On the next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. So here's Agrippa, here's uh, Bernice, and they're... Uh, brought into this auditorium or this palace in Caesarea, which ironically was built by their great-grandfather, Herod the Great. And they all took their seats. Now, as we learned from history and study about Caesarea, there were about 5,000 soldiers that were stationed at Caesarea, and each cohort had a commander uh, of about 1,000. And so there were about five commanders, it's believed, to be referenced as the military tribunal. And so there's a lot of people here. And this is not just everyday people according to their time. These are people who think a lot of themselves. And there are a lot of people here that have authority. So Paul is here. In the Greek text, we see that the author Luke says that they came in great pomp or in great fantasy dressed in purple and wearing gold circlets on their brows for crowns, all of the glitter and the presentation as they would stand and they would uh, present as King Agrippa and his sister Bernice would enter into the room. Just a, I mean, just a big deal. I mean, they were making a really, really big deal about King Agrippa. But Festus is also there as well. Now, Festus was a man of the world. Festus valued power and he valued position above all else. And he treated religion as a government-sponsored system that accepted anything and does not interfere with established authority. And so this this had nothing to do with religion to Festus. It had nothing to do with that. This was all about Festus maintaining his position of authority and making himself look good. Because remember... Paul has asked to be uh, sent to Rome to appeal uh, 
before the king, and so before Nero here. And so here's Paul asking for this uh, reference, if you will, and Festus has nothing to charge him with. And so Festus doesn't want to look like an idiot by sending him to a court with no charges brought against him. And so then we see, you know, we've got Festus here, Agrippa's there. Now Agrippa is considered an authority on Jewish affairs, Jewish scriptures, Jewish conflicts. He's the Jewish representative, if you will, in the room. Rome had even appointed him as the uh, curator of the temple, which means that he had the authority to appoint high priests and He was also, ironically enough, in charge of the temple treasury. Now, Agrippa, he had had accepted the traditional religion of the Jews, of of his people. And and so allowing it by form, you know, you you can by form do it, but by substance, well, not so much. And so he did anything and everything he could to shape his power or position if he could use it to his advantage. So he knew about Jewish customs. He knew about Jewish traditions. And so here's this room, if you will imagine with me. One of the greatest uh, palaces of their time. The most powerful, if you will, with the exception of Nero being in the room, which we, we know a little about Nero as well. So Agrippa's here, and he thinks he's the man. Bernice is here. Festus is here. There's five military leaders in the room and many, many others. And then there's little old Paul. Now, there's no glitter associated with Paul. He didn't have a great physique. You know, he wasn't like Saul of the Old Testament where, you know, the Bible says he was head and shoulders above everyone else, that he was a handsome person. Well, no, that's not Paul. He, he was not a giant man. He didn't have a great physique. In fact, elsewhere we're told that Paul was actually a little guy. He was uh, balding. He had little beetle brows, so they said, a crooked nose and bandy little legs. Not much to get excited about if that's who you're standing behind, right? But this is Paul. Now think of all the things that Paul's been through. You'd probably have bandy legs too if you'd been beaten as many times as Paul had. You might have beetle brows as well. But what we're told about Paul is that Paul may not possess all the physical attributes that man desires, but Paul was full of grace. Paul was full of grace. He had all the spiritual attributes that man should aspire to. Now, you would think at this point in the story, as Paul stands before at you know, to this point, the most powerful man he's ever stood before, Agrippa, that he would make his plea for release. After all, it's been over two years that Paul has been in prison for, according to Festus, nothing. And so Paul gets this opportunity. And so what does Paul say? Well, most of us would ask for release. Most of us at this point would be frustrated. Most of us would say, look, I'm not sure what's going on here, but we all know that there's no charges that you can continue to hold me against, and so you need to let me go. But that's not what Paul did. Paul saw every opportunity as a gospel opportunity. And so he presented the gospel. You see, for Paul, the most important thing was the gospel. Even after two years of being in prison, which, mind you, the majority of Paul's letters were written from prison, and so we certainly have benefited from that. Paul presents the gospel. But I want to point out here how Paul 
presented the gospel. Paul presented the gospel very direct, very clearly. He, he pulled no punches. It was not easy believism. It wasn't an attempt to get Agrippa to pray a prayer. It was a bold declaration of the most contentious topic of the day, and that was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul, again, Paul has been privy to an appearance of Jesus post-resurrection, right? Damascus Road. So Paul has seen something that not everyone has seen. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to over 500 people after the resurrection. Paul, of course, was one of those. And so Paul has seen the risen Lord Jesus. And so as contentious as the topic may be, that is completely irrelevant to Paul because his evangelism is not about numbers. His evangelism is about truth. And so Paul declares the resurrection of Jesus. And I began to think about I began to think about our evangelism. And I began to think about my evangelism. And you know, I think to be honest with you that we fall really really short in declaring who Jesus is. We we say, "Hey, well, why don't you come to church?" Or we say, hey, um, you know, do you read your Bible? Or we say, hey, did you know that Jesus loves you? And all those things are true. But apart from the resurrection, how does that change anyone? Right? I mean, think about it. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the hinge and the separator and the differentiator of us as Christians, as followers of Jehovah God and every other religion. It's Jesus. And it is specifically the resurrection of Jesus that separates it all. It is the door hinge of history. But yet our evangelism is often watered down to say, hey, would you pray a prayer? In churches today, our churches are riddled with decisions of people who come down and make a decision on some Sunday morning or Sunday night, and their life doesn't change at all. At all. You're not going to read in the Bible where Jesus says to walk an aisle and pray a prayer and you will receive eternal life. That is not what the Bible says. The Bible says to repent. Paul stands before Agrippa and he says to repent of your sins and receive the resurrected Lord Jesus. Repent simply means to turn from your sins and to begin to follow Jesus instead of yourself. So Paul's evangelism, well... It was a little different. It was direct. It was specific. He didn't invite Herod to church. He didn't ask him if he had a Bible. He proclaimed the truth of the gospel. That's what evangelism does. It is to declare the goodness of God that we just sang about. All my life, he has been faithful. All my life, you have been so, so good. For, so with every breath that I'm able, I will sing of the goodness of God. That's what gospel proclamation looks like. So we have this room full of people. Paul stands up and proclaims the gospel. Now, as we would think Paul would be on trial here, well, actually, Paul is not on trial here. Might I suggest to you this morning that King Agrippa is on trial? 
See, this is not about Paul. This is about King Agrippa. This is not the first time that Paul has shared his conversion story in the book of Acts. This is the first time King Agrippa has stood to hear Paul's conversion story in the book of Acts. You see, Agrippa was familiar with the Jewish customs. Agrippa was familiar with, uh, he had heard of Paul, he had heard about Jesus, but what Agrippa did is he hid behind, he hid behind religion. He hid behind religion. Now, what does that look like? I think the text is very, very clear. This is not on your handout. Uh, By the way, on your handout, you do have a spot for notes, so it'll be a little while before we actually get to a blank. Uh, But you do have an opportunity to write some notes in there. I wanted you to be able to do that. You see, Agrippa is someone who hid behind religion. Well, what does it look like in the church today to hide behind religion? Well, I think there's a few things that we see here. For King Agrippa, number one, is he always wanted to be in control. Now, this is not on your handout, but you can certainly write it down if you'd like. Agrippa wanted to be in control. Now, this is the part of the message to where we could really talk about Baptists and committees and committees on committees and how everybody wants to be the boss and we have too many chiefs and not enough Indians. You've heard that, that saying before to where, you know, we, we don't want to follow someone. We want to be in charge. And so that's why Baptist churches have committees and committees and committees and committees, right? Instead of following Jesus and Jesus being Lord, our church is certainly set up different than that. But we see here that uh, Agrippa always had to have control. He was, he was a control maniac. Everything for him had to be his way. And so he wanted to be the boss. And if he wasn't the boss, as we'll see, then he will change the conversation. And so a characteristic of someone who is hiding behind religion is someone who always has to be in control. That is not who Jesus is. Read Philippians chapter 2. Jesus came to serve, not to be served, the Bible says. And so Agrippa served what I would call the gospel of perception. He served the gospel of perception, that he wanted everyone to believe that he had all the answers. He wanted everyone to believe that he was doing the right thing, but it all was a facade. Remember, it was a fantasy, all of this pomp and all of the purple, and he walks into the room, and everyone thinks that King Agrippa has it all together. It's just like me and you on Sunday mornings, right? We waltz into the sanctuary as though our life is perfect and we've got our Sunday best on and we look around and someone says, how are you? And we say, great, when in reality, when in reality, if the film of Saturday night was played, we would leave the room. I'm not asking you if you're perfect because I know you're not nor am I. What I'm asking you is, is the perception that you're giving off of your life, is it reality? Herod wanted to be in control, and so he gave off this image that he was in absolute control, which is a characteristic of someone who's simply following religion, because here's here's the deal. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have given away control. You have surrendered your life to the fellowship and the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's a characteristic of a follower of Jesus is someone who has surrendered. So not only did Herod want to be in control, Herod thrived on things being his way. 
So he had the gospel of perception that he followed. I would submit to you this morning that he also had a gospel of preference. A gospel of preference. Now, we're not guilty of that, are we? No? Oh, well, I don't like how this was done. Well, if they don't do it the way I want to do it, then I'm not going to participate. If they don't do it this way, if this doesn't happen that way, a gospel of preference. Now, I know it's quiet in the room, and I know there may not be much You know, anybody who wants their own way is not going to agree when somebody says it's not always your way. Right? But listen, we're all human. And the human nature is to get it your way. And if it's not done your way, just like a two-year-old, you don't have to to teach a two-year-old to pitch a fit, do you? They do it on their own. And why do they do it? Because they don't get their way. And what we've got is we've got a lot of two-year-olds who have grown up in the church and now they're 20 or 40 or 60 or 80. And guess what? They still want their way. And if they don't get their way, well, guess what happens? Complain and bellyache and saying, oh, well, I just don't like the way that's done. So here's the question. Is it about you or is it about Jesus? Right? That's what the gospel says. That I would deny myself that I would take up my cross and follow Jesus, a gospel of preference. Our world is riddled with it. Herod is a great example. You see, a key indicator of your salvation or the lack thereof is when the only thing that you promote is your agenda. Thrived on the gospel of preference. Lastly, we see here that Agrippa, as he he thought everything was about himself. He, uh, he believed everything was about him, and he was very close-minded. Herod was very close-minded. Look, look what the Bible says in Acts 25, 22. The Bible says, then Agrippa said to, or Agrippa, he said to Agrippa, I would like to hear the man myself. So here Herod Agrippa says to Festus, he says, I want to hear this Paul guy. I want to hear him. I think about Acts 17. Paul stands in in front of the group in Athens, and uh, the Bible says that they spent all of their time in nothing but hearing something new. They heard. Paul stood before him and declared, Jesus In him we move and live and have our being. Paul declared that. Here's Agrippa standing uh, before the gospel that Paul proclaims. And yet we see that Agrippa is closed-minded. Look in verse 24. As he was saying these things in his defense, Acts 26, verse 24, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. But Paul says, no, 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 I'm, I'm not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know that you believe the prophets, King Agrippa. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time... Would you persuade me to be a Christian? 
Or in some other versions, maybe in your Bible, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. And Paul says, whether it's short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I, except for these change. And I imagine that Paul held up his wrist and said, hey, I want you to follow Jesus. I want you to be just like me, except for this. Right? Except for these chains. So Agrippa's closed-minded. He knows all of the things that are, are happening around him. After all, he's the boss, right? He's in control. So he thinks. But he's very closed-minded. You see, those who reject instruction are headed towards a life of destruction. If you're not teachable, then you're unreachable. If you're not teachable, you're unreachable. You should write that down. Because what happens in our world today is we've got a bunch of people who think they know everything. Have you turned on CNN and Fox News? Right? They think they know everything. They think that they can use the Bible to describe their agenda and then use it to twist and contort to support their agenda. Remember a gospel of preference? But they don't want to, if anybody, when is the last time you said, you know what? I'm sorry, I was wrong. You see, unteachable equals unreachable. You wonder why God's not doing anything in your life. Well, are you receiving instruction? You see, as Paul was speaking, Festus interrupted, and Festus didn't believe in the resurrection. He had a Greek outlook, and he thought the resurrection of Jesus was impossible. And so he tells Paul, he says, man, you're crazy. All this learning has made you mad. He says, you believe something that is beyond common sense. To which I wish Paul would have said, you're absolutely right. It doesn't make sense. And that's why I believe it. Amen? Right? I mean, aren't you glad that you haven't figured it all out yet? Aren't you glad that you serve a God who has more answers than you Aren't you glad that you serve a God who's greater than the circumstance in which you're in, that you've tried to correct but you can't, but there is someone who can? Amen. Aren't you glad that's the God that we serve? And so at this point, Festus says, look, it doesn't make any sense that a man would be raised from the dead. And Paul says, you're absolutely correct, my friend, and that's why he's God. Right? And so Festus says, you're crazy. But Paul says, you know what, this isn't about you, Festus. Remember, Paul's not on trial, Agrippa is. This is not about you, Festus, this is about Agrippa. And so Paul left the attention of the conversation with Festus to speak directly to Agrippa. And he says, hey, look, none of this, the resurrection of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, the beginning of the church and how God has moved in the Holy Spirit through uh, the beginning of Uh, the church in Jerusalem. None of this has escaped your attention, Agrippa. Remember, he was well-schooled in Judaism. And so Paul takes this very direct approach, and it puts Agrippa in a very big dilemma. Here's why. If, If Agrippa says, yes, I believe the prophets, well, then Paul would no doubt claim that he must then believe in Jesus because the prophets declared Jesus. But if he says no, well, then he disqualifies himself from being a good Jew, much less a good Jewish ruler. 
But remember, he wants to maintain control. And so his, his role begins to shift here from someone who is in authority who can help Paul to someone who actually needs help himself. You see how God did that? What the gospel does is it takes you off the throne of your life and it shows you your desperate need for Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what the gospel did to Agrippa here. You see, although a Gentile, Agrippa could on occasion represent himself as a Jew in spirit, and he had certain rights in the temple, and so all of a sudden this turns the attention. And so Paul asserts that Agrippa, look, you believe in the prophets. That's the foundation of belief in Jesus. That's what he's telling Agrippa here. Now, Agrippa is just like many, many, many people that we know today. That there's foundational exposure to who Jesus is. I mean, you're, this is not the first time you've been in church today. I would dare say there's anybody in the room that's never been to church. Most people have been exposed to the foundational knowledge of Jesus. As a matter of fact, if you're in D group, your memory verse is Hebrews 11.6 this week. Let's read it. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe foundationally, must believe that He exists. You can't believe in God if you don't believe He exists first, right? So, whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. The foundational belief of who Jesus is. Most people have been exposed to that, that they know that Jesus is the Son of God. They have foundational knowledge. They've been exposed to that. But what our world wants to do, is, and Agrippa's the same way, is that we want to come to Jesus on our terms. We want to come to Jesus the way that we want to. We want to understand everything. It's got to make sense to us. It's got to be the way that we want it to be. Remember, we want to be in control. We want preference. That's the gospel that we want to serve today. That's the gospel that's being promoted today is just be exposed to Jesus. Just be around Jesus. There is no salvation by association. That doesn't exist. You're not going to read it in the Bible. Salvation is just like John 3 with Nicodemus where Jesus specifically said to Nicodemus, you, singular you, must be born again. That's the gospel. It is not salvation by association. I'm, I'm very glad that you're here today, but coming here today does not save you. You see, Agrippa hid behind the cloak of his office as king. And here's my question. Is it possible that there are many people who hide behind the cloak of their association with Christianity? Is that possible? I thought a lot about that this week. I think there's a lot of people that are good at church. That they go through the motions. That they show up that maybe they're in charge of a few things. But what does it look like between them and Jesus? What does that look like? 
I mean, I'm a math guy, okay? And statistically, the parable of the sower and the seed says that 25% takes root, right? One out of four. Now, I have no idea who's saved or lost, nor do you, nor does any human. Only Jesus knows that. But I'm afraid that we may have a lot of people who are playing church. A lot of people that are associated with the things of God. And it's very easy to do that around here, mind you. Because God is at work. God is moving. God is changing people. God is transforming people. And so it's easy for us to sit in the pew and to look and see baptism stories or to hear testimonies of people who have been radically changed. But the question is this. When have you been changed? When have you been transformed? Look, you can sit in a chair and be the boss all day long, but until the reality of who you are is exposed, have you really met Jesus? Because when you and I come to Jesus, it's me saying, Jesus, here's everything I know about myself, and I'm giving it all to you, as broken and as shattered as it is. Listen, this is not about coming to church. At the end of the day, when the lights are turned out and we stand before God Almighty, He's not going to ask how many times you went to church. He's going to ask, what did you do with Jesus? You see, the Jews believed that a Messiah would come and be born in Bethlehem. And matter of fact, guess what? Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And He says, hey, I'm the Messiah. And yet they rejected Him. In the same way today, Jesus calls the person who claims the name of Christ to do what? To walk in obedience to the commands of Scripture. Instead of actually doing that, though, people think that coming to church or participating in the activities of church and being associated with Jesus is sufficient instead of actually following Jesus. You see, what Agrippa wanted was a religion without Jesus. And that's what our world wants, a religion without Jesus. How is that possible? How is it possible to have a religion without Jesus? Well, Paul asked the same question in verse 27. He says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. He says, Agrippa, I know that you know You see, there is a stark difference, first blank on your listening guide, there's a stark difference in knowing the truth and allowing the knowledge of that truth to change how you live. It is not enough to know. It has to change how you live. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5, It says, uh, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. Paul also says in 2 Timothy, uh, I'm sorry, in Titus chapter 1 verse 16, he says, they profess to know God but they deny Him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. You see, again, there's a stark difference in knowing the truth and allowing the truth to change how you live. It is not enough to be exposed to the truth. We must act upon it. So here's the question that maybe you're wrestling with then this morning. Is what then separates a believer from an unbeliever? 
we're all here this morning, we're all at church, and so we would ask the question, okay, well, I'm here, and you're saying that we can't hide behind religion, so what is the differentiator? Well, almost is differentiated by what you obey. Do you obey your preference, or do you obey Jesus? You see, the Bible says in James 2.19, the demons in hell believe and yet tremble. And they're in hell, by the way. They have a knowledge of who Jesus is, but it hasn't changed them. Obviously, it didn't change them. You see, the Word, he says, the Word came from the prophets. He says, I know you know the prophets. He says, these are the things that are written. I know you know that. Again, just like us today, we fast forward to 2020. I know you know the gospel. I know you've read the Bible. I know you've been exposed to Scripture. How is that possible that someone would want a religion without Jesus? Well, I think, I think there's a Scripture reference that makes this very, very clear. The Bible says in Luke 24, it says uh, in verse 13, that very day after the resurrection, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that have happened. Jesus was crucified. Now there's word that Jesus may be resurrected. And so while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and he went with them. Okay? Two guys talking about this whole Jesus thing. Jesus comes on the road to Emmaus beside them, but verse 16, chapter 24, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Interesting. In verse 27, it says that as Jesus walked with them, beginning with Moses and who and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures of the things concerning himself. Okay? So there's these guys walking to Emmaus. They're talking about Jesus. All of a sudden, Jesus comes in beside them, and they don't even recognize Jesus. Right? They're, you know, you hear that about churches sometimes, that Jesus could show up and they wouldn't even know it because they're just going right along on their own way and doing their own thing. And so these guys are walking, Jesus shows up, they don't recognize Jesus, and so Jesus begins to explain who Jesus is using the Scriptures and the prophets, and that's what Paul says to Agrippa, hey, I know you know the prophets, okay? And then look what the Bible says in Luke 24 and verse 31, and their eyes were opened and they recognized Him. When were their eyes opened? Their eyes were opened when Jesus revealed Himself through what? Through the Scriptures, he revealed himself through the Scriptures. And so you and I, guess what? We cannot see Jesus until we see the Word. Because why? Because Jesus said, I am the Word, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so the only way that you and I come to faith and belief and fellowship in Jesus is through the Word of God. Jesus is a stranger until He is revealed through the Word of God, just like He was on the road to Emmaus. It is the Word that changes you, that gives you and me eyes to see, that transforms our lives. The Word is the standard of truth. 
There was a, there was a survey done here recently. 40,000 people were polled. Just came out. 40,000 people were polled from ages 8 to age 80. From age 8 to age 80. And they asked the question, how many times a week do you spend reading the Bible? And so, you know, they got different answers. And so the people who spent one time a week in the Word, it had a negligible effect in their life. So that could be today. This is your one time, okay? So you can count today as one. And so it's whether hearing the, the pastor preach or, you know, reading on your own. One time a week, negligible effect. Two times a week, negligible effect. Age 8 to 80... 40,000 people. What effect did reading the Word of God have on you? One time a week, not much. Two times a week, not much. Three times a week, there was a blip on the radar. So three times a week, there was a little heartbeat, if you will. You know, it went up and made a, you know, a slight change in their lifestyle. I didn't, I hadn't, we had nothing to do with this study. This is an outside Michael Memorial study. 40,000 people surveyed. Three times a week, blip on the radar. Four times a week, well, at four times a week, it spikes off of the chart. Four times a week, it spikes off the chart. Guess what happened when people read their Bible four times or more per week? Well, number one, their feeling lonely dropped 30%. So those who felt lonely said, well, it went down by 30%. Their anger issues dropped 32%. So if you got a problem with anger, maybe you should read your Bible. Anger issues dropped 32%. Bitterness in relationships, marriage, family, kids dropped 40%. Just by reading the Bible four times a week. Now, there are seven days for those of you not good in math, and only four of those they read. Okay? Four days they read, and their, rela- their bitterness dropped 40%. Alcoholism dropped 57%. Alcoholism dropped 57%. Feeling spiritually stagnant dropped 60%. God's just not spoken to me. I, I don't know what God wants me to do. I feel like I'm stuck. Well, read the Bible. Viewing pornography dropped 61%. 40,000 people said that. If they read their Bible four times or more. How about on the other end of the spectrum? Instead of dropping, what increase? Well, sharing your faith, it jumped 200%. When you read your Bible four times a week or more, you share your faith 200% more than if you don't. And how about this? How about D groups? You know, discipling others, uh, relationships that multiply. Those who read their Bible four times or more per week, well, they disciple others, jumps 230%. 230 percent. Because why? Because of the Word. Because of the Word. And so Paul is speaking about the Word. He says, I know you know the prophets. Do you believe in Jesus and the resurrection? And Agrippa says, hey, look, in this short time, do you think you're going to persuade me to be a Christian? And so what Paul is doing is he's speaking directly to the state of every unbeliever. In verse 17 and 18, he says that Jesus says, I'll rescue those that I'm sending you to, to the Jews and to the Gentiles. I'm sending you to open their eyes. 
And so this gospel that was presented to King Agrippa was not watered down. It was not easy believism. You see, what Paul was doing is he was saying that faith in Jesus is a change of direction. And you know what will happen? It will lead you into a lot of opposition. Not everybody's going to agree with you. Not everybody's going to love you. Not everybody's going to agree to your newfound faith or believe the way that you believe. Because obviously Agrippa and Festus don't believe the way that Paul believes. But yet he stood for what he believed. So he says, hey, look, this faith is going to be a change of direction. He was very clear about this. He didn't water it down. And so as we close this morning, what I want to say to you is this, is that Faith in Jesus, the gospel, is not a call for you to associate yourself with someone. It is not a call for you to change your schedule. It is a call for you to turn from your sins and to turn towards Jesus. That is what repentance means. And so Paul makes it very clear here to Agrippa, you need to repent. You see, this explains the Jewish opposition to Paul. His adversaries thought, hey, life is good. It is okay the way that it is. You see, that's the way they interpreted the law of Moses. But the problem with the law is that the law was not given to show us how we could attain righteousness. But the law was given to show us that we are sinful and that we need the righteousness that only comes from Jesus. So if you say, well, I've got to do better, if you leave today and say, oh, I don't want to be like Agrippa, I've got to do better, you missed it. No, you've got to give over to Jesus. You've got to surrender control. You've got to give up your way of life and give in to the way of Jesus. You see, every unbeliever is blind to this reality. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. That's why there's 400 people in the room and 400,000 who live on the coast. You see, every unbeliever is blind to the reality. Every unbeliever is deluded. Every unbeliever is insane. Every unbeliever suppresses the truth and believes in a lie. You see, if you are not a believer in Jesus, you are deluded and you are blinded by that fact. You're worse than someone who is actually blind. What Satan has done is he's blinded the eyes of unbelievers so that they may not see the glory of God, that they may not see the face of Jesus, that they may not see the redemption of Jesus. So to be very clear this morning, the state of an unbeliever is a state of ignorance and blindness. Agrippa was blind to the realities. But I want to leave you with this. God was not. In spite of all of the things that King Agrippa did, do you not think that he would be the last person that God would pursue? Think about his family heritage. Family members tried to kill Jesus. Family members beheaded James. And yet, God in His patience keeps Paul in prison for over two years with at least one of the reasons to share the gospel with King Agrippa. He gave him another chance. Unbelievable. Why would he do that? 
Well, because there's no one who is beyond the reach of our sovereign God. So if you're here this morning and you say, I I can't be saved. Well, this message is for you. If you're here this morning and you say, I've been hiding behind religion, and if I go down to, to declare repentance that I need to be actually saved, what will people say? Well, this message is for you. Why would God go to such great lengths? Why would He care about such a vile man? Because that's the God that we serve. But unfortunately for Agrippa, he didn't do what you and I have the opportunity to do this morning. If you're here this morning and you've been hit with the crosshairs of the gospel and Jesus is saying to you, you need to repent. You have the chance to do that, but because of the lens of history, we look back and see that Agrippa, in fact, did not do that. You see, in Acts 25, 23, I told you that Luke told us that Agrippa, Bernice, they came in with great pomp, with great fantasy. Luke uses the word here, fantasia, when he writes this. And by using the word fantasia, Luke was indicating that all of this pomp and all of this glitter was simply a fantasy, nothing lasting. And so what the world in which Agrippa had built for himself, it's believed that he lived to mid-90s, maybe 100. And so here's the question that we ask ourselves today then. Well, where is Agrippa today? Where is Bernice, Felix, Festus? All the Herods. Where's Nero today? All the people that are part of this story in Acts 26. Well, according to Scripture, unless you submit to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will spend an eternity separated from Jesus Christ in a place called hell. You see, they all live lives of fantasy. They live luxurious lives every day. They had built the fantasy all around them. But the reality was that they were serving perception. They were not serving Jesus. And so I urge you this morning, through the declaration of the Word of God, that you come to Jesus only through the Word. That Jesus reveals who He is through the Word. And our response is not to barter with God, it is not to negotiate with God, but it is to simply bow before God. It is to surrender before God. It is to confess with our mouth that Jesus is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and to confess that we are sinners, and apart from God we have no hope of eternity. That's what repentance means. And so as we stand before the text this morning, The God that we serve is the same God that waited for over two years. He declared the gospel through Paul to Felix, who denied it. He declared the gospel to Festus, who denied it. He declared the gospel through Paul to Agrippa, who denied it. Will you be listed on that list? Will you be the one who heard the gospel, was exposed to the foundational truths of the gospel but yet never received the gospel because you didn't surrender to the gospel? Or will you stand with me and countless other Christians with a short, bald, 
knobby little man named Paul in glory with a perfect Savior because you surrendered, because you declared the supremacy of Jesus in your life and that you stopped following yourself and you started following Jesus. So remember, the question when you stand before God won't be, how many times did you go to church? The question will be, what did you do with Jesus? So this morning, what will you do with Jesus?